meant to tell them that they may take our game, but they'll never take our freedom! Episode 732 with me in studio is Rick Tillmans. Uh, welcome to the show, Rick. Thank you for having me. Yeah, well, you're back for the fifth time, but before we get going, uh, we have a sponsor, believe it or not, if I can figure out the overlays. I can't even find, oh, there it is. Bots Guys, looking to boost your business leads and sales with expert marketing automation. Botsguy.com has got you covered. They specialize in automating social media, e email, SMS, and website tasks so you can focus on growth. Say goodbye to manual tasks and help to increase efficiency, customer engagement, and revenue growth. Check out botsguy.com now to learn more. That's BotsGuy. I, I, I have a sponsor, so look at me growing and improving as a human being with this podcast. Episode 732, you can find us live every Sunday, 8 p.m. Mountain Standard Time. You can find us on Spotify. Uh, where, uh, where else are we on? We're on, obviously on YouTube Live and uh, iHeartRadio or wherever else podcasts are found. Rick Tillman, you're with us. We're going to be talking about pros and cons of youth soccer in America uh, a little bit or wherever else this podcast takes us. So first, let's talk a little bit about you. Are you still with FC Batavia? How's it going over there? It's going great. You know, living the dream, turning my hobby into my living. And, you know, club is growing. I got great volunteers on the board, the team managers, the coaches. I, I know a lot of people say they're living the dream, but I really am. I would do this for free, but don't tell my parents that. <laughs> well, it's all about passion. And if you can make money on your passion, that'd be amazing. And that looks like you're doing well for, your, for yourself. We both do soccer and survive on soccer, and uh, we're, we're lucky. Not many people love what they do, so uh, hats off to you. You've been How long have you been with FC Batavia now? Well, we started the club in 2018, but I moved here in the mid to late uh, 90s. I think it was 97 from Holland. The, yeah. That's where the accent from, in case people are wondering. So I've been coaching professionally for about 25 years now. But yeah, the club is uh, founded in 2018. Yeah, I think your mic, if it's here, I think if you pull it up more in front, it's a come on the side of the mic. How's this? Perfect. So, yeah, it's a new mic. It's a brand new mic that you, you have, and hopefully it'll it'll improve this podcast because I used some pretty cheap mics last time I had you on. So uh, I'm glad you're back on with a, a, a more improved mic. But um, the uh, speaking of Holland... Uh, I'm a big Wim Hof fan, and he's from Holland. That makes two of us. Uh, do you do cold plunges? I do. I don't have an ice bath routine yet, uh, but I do take cold showers. I took one about half an hour to get ready for the show, Dave. Uh, to keep you up? I, lo I love <laughs> You know, when you catch your breath and you start shivering a bit, and uh, the endorphins start going, and I, I heard it, it actually stays with you for hours throughout the day. And... It uh, encourages uh, weight loss, which at the moment oh. I can use a little bit. <laughs> awesome. Man, that's how I'm losing weight. There you go. But, uh, yeah, I'm big Wim Hof. I've been doing Wim Hof breathing and cold plunges, shoot, four or five years now. It's been been a while. 
but it, it, it's very helpful to me. But let's get right into it. And uh, before we start talking about pros and cons of of club soccer, there's there's good in, in all of it, and there's also bad in anything if you look deep enough. Uh, if you're uh, participating in this podcast right now, you're uh, wanting to ask a question of either one of us, feel free to comment, and uh, we'll make sure we are trying to answer as many questions as possible. So be sure to comment. We'll put it on the show and we will do the best to uh, answer any questions you may have. But starting first, let's talk about the uh, pros of youth soccer in America. You obviously have the physical fitness side, builds character, uh, culture diversity. Uh, There's a lot of things. But talking about culture diversity real quick. So when, when I grew up, I'm an Arizona native. I played for Cisco. And the the first time I really, at, at my school, we had Hispanics, we had some Asians, and, and whites. But no African-Americans, hardly any. But the first African-American I met was on my soccer team at Cisco. And that's how it can bring people together. And I thought that was uh, uh, very telling and, and uh, learned a lot from that. But I wouldn't say that's the same today because I think we're more segregated right now as far as uh, youth soccer goes. And I say that because when I played for Cisco, which was, you know, the, one of the top clubs oh, yeah, in the United States, mm-hmm. uh, it was all about winning and winning state cups. So they would go anywhere to find the best talent they could just to compete. And now it doesn't seem that's the case because I don't know what we're competing for anymore. Like what – what do we compete for? Is there? I, I, I don't get I it. I think that's what you got to ask yourself, right? As a as a soccer club, what what do we want to achieve? What's our mission? And I think I've said this a few times. I think there are three types of clubs, uh, at least here in Arizona. I cannot speak for other states, but there's there's the recreational clubs. And by the way, one club category is not better or worse than another one. But there's the recreational clubs. So everybody plays equal, very low cost, very low time commitment. You know, you practice maybe not at all. At the most, I think, once uh, once per week. It's mainly a volunteer parent uh, running the sessions and coaching. And there's nothing against that. I think it's a great entry level, for example. And again, the benefits of soccer as far as what you just mentioned, the physical the physical part, the, the, the teamwork, the leadership, the communication, the self-discipline is all fantastic. Then you got... The other extreme, I think, let's call it the uber-competitive clubs, where, just like you said about Cisco in the past, where it was mainly about winning. So trophies, standings, scholarships, pro contract, training four or five times per week, thousands and thousands of dollars that parents have to uh, rake up. So that's, and not everybody plays, right? Because if you coach to win, then some of the so-called weaker players on a team might not get much playing time. And then you got one category, and my club, Batavia, falls into that, which is a balanced approach, very serious about soccer, right? Obviously, this is our living. We try to teach the right way, but we still understand that these kids have a life outside of soccer. They got a family life. They got school. Uh, So at Batavia, we practice two or three times per week, depending on the age. We don't travel much yet. I'm not saying we're cheap, but compared to some other clubs here in the Valley, it's still very, very reasonable. And that's what we chose as a club. So going back to your question, what do we want to achieve with this? 
I think that's what we want to achieve. We try to teach soccer the right way, but also raise good human beings, good citizens who are respectful, who have self-discipline, who know how to work in a team, who work on their leadership. And yeah, I get a kick out of both, you know, teaching soccer, but also making sure that these kids turn into great human beings. I mean, just the other day, I'm walking in the store. Sorry to, <laughs> to sidetrack here, Dave, but I run into this kid, well, kid, young woman who's pushing a stroller with a kid. She goes, Coach Rick. And I really didn't uh-huh. really, really recognize her. But here you go, 20 years later, and they still know you. They still thank you for the, the stamp you put on their life, how, they, how you educated them. Yeah, and that's a big thrill. Yeah, I, I have a, I have that happen a lot to me where now it's like, because I don't, well, I was a PE teacher before um, I even got the job here, and I was, uh, ran into someone at the store, like, I didn't recognize, it was a man, but I, I was his PE teacher when they were like nine, and you don't remember me? I'm like, no. I think we, I don't. we underestimate the, the, I mean, think back, think back about your coach when you were that age. He might not remember you, but you sure remember him, right? Right. The thing he said, a compliment he gave, an instruction he gave. I mean, to, to have your stamp on a kid's development, whether it's on the field or off the field, that is, at the end of the day, that's why I do what I do. Well, th- that kind of leads us into the first question I'll, I'll have for you, unless uh, audience uh, participates. Uh, what do you see as the biggest benefit of youth soccer for kids? And you kind of touched uh, upon that, but uh, can you... Uh, elaborate a little bit more uh, about the biggest benefits of youth soccer for kids? Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's start with the the simplest one, the most logical one, which is the physical benefit. So they exercise, they get the blood flowing. It is good for your health. They learn how to stretch. They learn how to suffer a little bit, if you know what I mean. You know, get get over the hump, get over the, 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 the tough spots in life. But it's more than just physical. It's also not to get too philosophical here, but soccer in a way is a microcosm of life, right? We got to deal with losses, with wins. We got to know how to operate as a team. The team is more important than one player. Self-discipline is a big one. Commitment, you know, once you say you're on a team, then you commit for the whole year and you try to move heaven and earth to make all sessions, all games. And let's be honest, the... the, the the percentage of players that reach either pro or very high college level, at the end of the day, it's a very low percentage. Your college coach, you tell me, but I'm sure we're talking about 1%, maybe 2% of all the kids that play. I don't know. Maybe. 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 Uh, 1%. Right. So the rest has to look back on a positive experience physically, but also all these life tools that we just mentioned, that's going to benefit them in their life, outside of the soccer field, at, in, in their jobs later on in life, in their relationships in their yeah their self-improvement so yeah i think it's huge well that that brings us up to the first question from a listener this is from 4k for life and they say or ask a question do you think mls next is good for development or causes burnout now i'll I'll go ahead and take that on uh first but i think mls next um, it's all predicated on, in my opinion, who the coaches. And there's many forms of what burnout could possibly be and what is what development is being offered. I think MLS Next is different. 
in different states. I think Arizona is kind of unique with MLS next. Um, I only can kind of comment about Arizona, but wait, there's some really good coaches in MLS next, but if it's causing a financial burden uh, upon families, I I know when it first came out, it's going, Oh, it's going to be free. It's going to be free. It's not free. Uh, The MLS next there's free. I'm sure there's scholarships involved in some ways, but there's someone's paying for it or when a trip is going to occur, there's financial uh, obligations going to happen. So you can have burnout as a family uh, trying to uh, afford it. But the, as far as development, I think it's always good to get good competition in um, and push yourself to the, the highest levels that is offered to you. If you're in a position where it's okay to make a mistake, you don't have to, when at all costs and all that, it's truly about development. I, I think it's a lot has to do with the coach. MLS next here. Um, I think there's a little bit of confusion of who the top talent is in Arizona. Yeah. The, you have MLS next, which is a higher level soccer supposedly, but there's higher level players that are placed all over the Valley. They're not all unified. And there's many MLS next. You have MLS, you have families jumping from one MLS next team to another MLS next team. So it gets us back to that whole thing. What are we doing? Where's the hierarchy? If there was only one MLS next per age group, then I'd be like, okay, that has to be the best. But it's it's all over the place. I don't know if that answers your question. There's so many different things. We're actually going to talk about uh, development shortly about what, where, where we're at with that. But far as burnout, burnouts happen before MLS next and it's going to occur after. And I think it has more to do with um, stress uh, that's provided not only on the sideline from the coaches, the expectations, the win at all costs kind of thing, especially in the, the, the formable years of brain development. Um, there's allowed to have risk and all these things. There's so many things that go into it. I think that's burnout with anything. I think that's why kids quit sport in general, but soccer's had a high dropout rate for a lo- long time before MLS next was even put in. Yeah. And I got, I got an additional thought. I agree with everything you just said, Dave. And then there's the other thing is that, some people might think that if they join MLS Next or one of the other programs with all the abbreviations, I lose track, to be honest with you, um, that that being part of a team like that automatically gets a player to that pro contract or that college scholarship. That pathway. Right. I don't... Could Please correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it's the player, him, him or herself, that is responsible for that development. If you're a good soccer player... I mean, there's an age, I guess, I don't know, where at 16, 17, where you really want to start competing against, you know, the best of the best. But at, at the younger ages, I think it's about technical development, get as good as you uh, can get, and don't get caught up too much with the standings, the divisions, the, the promotion relegation. I, I mean, I, I know another question we're going to answer soon is the focus on winning and what it does. But yeah, I, I do believe it's detrimental for uh, soccer player development, especially at the youth level, that the emphasis on winning is so high at such a young age. Um, yeah, I, I 110% disagree with uh, how that's going on, uh, at least here in Arizona. The, the, there is confusion about... All right. We're back on. 
We have audio. We can roll. I'll patch this thing together for those who are going to join us. Here we are, and I'll start sharing. But um, we're going to move on to the next question because people will find it eventually. I'll patch this together somehow. On episode 732, no audio, sponsored by botsguy.com. Uh, we are talking about what are some of the biggest challenges facing youth soccer in, in America today. Uh, you want to yeah, roll a little synops- that, that, synopsis of that? That's almost an easy one. Uh, I think it's twofold. One, as mentioned earlier, the emphasis on winning at such a young age is detrimental for development. So kids get not much playing time. They're afraid to make mistakes. A coach coaches a game to win you know, short-term, this coming Saturday, instead of having a long-term five-year plan that you're going to stick to as far as the technical curriculum, regardless of win-losses or draws. So, again, the emphasis on winning is, is in my eyes, too big. Let, Let me share that in Europe, these youth coaches at the professional academies like Ajax and whatnot, they don't get hired and fired and compensated based on how their team how their team does, the win-loss records are almost not important whatsoever. It is about how his or her players develop. How many kids does a coach develop in so they're ready for the next level, whether it's from, uh, to go from the 14-year-olds to the 16-year-olds or the 18-year-olds to the senior team. That's what's important. Not if you win this coming Saturday or if you win a promotion and whatnot. And by the way... You know, if you develop players correctly, I don't know about you, Dave, but I think sooner or later the wins will come automatically. You know, don't take my word for it. We got my 06 boys right now, uh, 10 points ahead of the number two, and they're going to the state league. Uh, oh, let's see, 2012 girls earned two promotions in a row. And that's, I'm not saying that because we brag about our wins. I'm just giving it as an example that if you properly developed players and teams, automatically the wins will come. So that's one. And the second detrimental thing, or the biggest challenge in youth soccer in America is, of course, the pay-to-play. There are so many talented kids. If you go here to, you know, South Phoenix or the Hispanic communities, there's more talent there than, um, than there are on other parts. But those families can unfortunately not fork up two to three or four or $5,000. And therefore, those kids don't get exposed to professional training and they will never reach their potential. While in Holland, my dad, I think when I was... So I started playing when I was five. My dad paid about 100 guilders, it was back then, which is about 50 euros right now. And he was done for the year, you know, no coaching fees. And yeah, I, so so in Europe it's a, and South America, it's a people's sport. Everybody can afford it. The biggest talents get good training. Well, unfortunately, and it's actually pretty sad, is that the, some of the biggest talents in America, and especially in Arizona, cannot afford uh, professional training and therefore miss out. And that also means that that's one of the reasons why the American national team, at least the men, even though they should be a powerhouse, right? Because it's a huge country. It is about 300-something million people, I think. Millions millions of dollars uh, available at, in the USSF. But for some reason, they cannot get beyond the round of 16 or the quarterfinals in a World Cup. So why is it that a very small country like Holland, with only 16 million people, and not not a rich country necessarily, why is it that they, year in, year out, do deliver top talent and top teams? Uh, I have no idea on that. Um, 
it's it's definitely intriguing as far as thinking about um, why aren't we developing the top talent? And, and I'll give you an example. Just just being a native here, Sean McDonald, one of the top athletes ever to play soccer, uh, won a state title at Shine Mountain High School with my brother, and he played for SC Del Sol or Shamrocks back in the day, whatever it was called back then. And he, instead of doing soccer, because he was there was like no options for him, he did nine years in the NFL. Uh, there's uh, Joel Sangwa, who's an Afri- African refugee that was just uh, just living across the street from Cortez High School, didn't play club at all. We found him somehow because we Jose Corona, the head coach of Cortez, said, "Hey, there's there's this 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 baller at my school. He's not playing high school. He's he just plays for um, African leagues here. We we find him, we grab him, and he plays here in 2019, becomes a player of the year, and now he starts for Akron University as a center back. There's a lot of those players out here, but who's going after him? U.S. Soccer doesn't. They don't be. They don't like try to really identify these kids. They're strictly on who's the academy coaches and clubs. Uh, we're gonna we're gonna pick from them and have them develop the talent, which they're not. They 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 don't have the resources or the funding, or they don't allocate the funding to be able to really go find those uh, players and put them together. Uh, I was, I, I I'm hopeful that. U.S. Soccer will get their act together and create a true state team where they go after the best talent. Yeah, and, and, and it's not it. just the clubs that that uh, charge quite a bit, but it's also if you want to try out for ODP for the USSF. I, I don't know what it costs a family right now, but I remember about 10, 15 years ago, if you didn't have a thousand dollars to fork up, you could not. You could try. You couldn't. You could try out for ODP, but if you made the team. And you have to start investing in travel and hotel and and whatnot. Then, uh, yeah, it's not for everybody, unfortunately. No, the ODP is kind of one of my biggest problems I have uh, in Arizona. Anyways, uh, I made I made the ODP team, and um, it was a big deal. I got the letter and everything. It was such a big deal. I was thirteen at the time, and my family's very excited. They're like, "Okay, we need this amount of um, amount of dollars, and we can afford it." I remember my mom would wrote a letter to my family trying to secure funds, doing whatever she could uh, to get the funding uh, to help me go to the be on the, uh, the regional team um, because I, I was selected. Part, I made the state team, and then I made the regional team. Luckily, the ODP the, that year when I made it, everything was here local, so I didn't have to go anywhere. But I made the regional pull, and I'm like, oh, this is the pathway to make the national team. I was so excited. And then it was like I remember the dollar. It seemed like it was like – Twelve hundred dollars, but back then in nineteen eighty nine, that was like four thousand, five thousand dollars today. And we, I remember trying to secure money from family, and we weren't able to secure secure enough or whatever it might have been. But to put the stress on my my poor mother and and my family, and you know everyone trying to contribute, but no one really could contribute. It, it was it messed me up for a little bit, and and drew a very dislike for ODP because of that one experience. Yeah, I still have the letters, actually, when I was invited to the Dutch uh, youth national team. So you got under 15, then under 17. It's a huge honor, right? You see the KNVB logo on there. But again, you got scouted by those scouts of the Dutch Soccer Federation. Then you get invited 
to first try out and then eventually play for your uh, Holland is uh, divided in provinces so first you make your province team then South Holland and when I was 16 I was in the best 40 players in the whole country but my parents never had to pay a single dollar Dave not a single dollar to, to that's for the for the Dutch equivalent of ODP because it matters over there and for whatever reason it there's not it didn't matter early on, and now the game does matter a lot more, and we still haven't got out of those old patterns of, of finding players. We have a question, or a comment, actually, from Andreas. He says, ODP was designed for extra training, hence development in the name, and for scouting state players, yet all they do is scrimmage for most of the time. So I'm, Yeah, that's, I heard the same thing. Actually, I worked ODP, so I can only confirm that. Yeah, and then Gary Funk says, USA high schools put money into NFL and baseball before soccer. High school, fun football, and baseball, and kids can be recruited from high school to play pro leagues. High school soccer is not the path to pro. And then Andreas uh, goes on to say, whichever club fuels the most players that pay for ODP usually gets most of the players selected by these clubs, which I don't know. Well, yes, there's, I got a, a quick story there. There's definitely politics involved. I remember I, I moved here in 97 and in 98, I coached ODP. I think it was the 82 boys. And I remember, so you get hundreds of kids that you got to make a decision on within, I don't know, two hours, which is already close to impossible uh, task, if you ask me. But I just went, because I didn't know anybody, I just picked what I thought was the best 20 players. Well, guess what? <laughs> I got a call the next day from the ODP had guy then he goes why didn't you pick that player he's he's been the leading top scorer for sereno it was back then remember mm -hmm. sereno yeah yeah i said I, I i don't know about reputations but what i saw from him i wasn't impressed well you might want to take another look at him and if there's one thing i forget, uh, regret right now is that how old was i i was probably in my mid to late 20s and i was kind of talked manhandled into picking him up after all so yes Politics plays a role. Uh, <laughs> I would never do that now, by the way. And, and big time, um, I actually was uh, fired from ODP. How so? Well, by not being rehired, I guess. So I was, I, I did ODP and I was coaching the 94 team uh, age group. I think it was 94. Anyways, a long time ago. And uh, I took the team to uh, Oregon uh, to campaign against other teams over there. And uh, I, I was training the kids. I was trying to teach them as much technique as possible. And I was talking to them quite a bit as a team. And I, I told them um, what a scam a lot of, of the clubs are, you know, like far as you're paying for this. And what you need to pay attention to is develop technique, play on as play as much soccer as possible, multiple teams. I taught all the things I talk about today about, you know, finding more opportunity to play, play with older teams, adult, you know, embrace the game sure. in, in a way like it's done everywhere else. And uh, the manager that was with us, like, I, I don't remember a club or anything like that, but obviously I had a lot of big, big clubs there. And, and uh, he complained to the club coaches who went to the state, say, hey, uh, Dave Cameron's telling them to uh, – uh, to go play on multiple teams and stuff, which is illegal, I guess, uh, which is so weird. 
as far as development goes, you know, I was encouraging them to play more. You can't just rely on your club team to develop it. You, you have to, you have to develop. You need to watch the game. You need to train extra. You need to find opportunities to improve. And I got pretty much let go from stating how to get better in soccer. Well, you're obviously right when you say that. So street soccer, right, as it is in, let's say, South America or Europe. Sorry to go back to those two continents all the time. But I think those are the only two continents that have delivered uh, world champs. Correct? Yep. So those kids in Rio and Madrid and, and, uh, and Amsterdam, those kids play, well, without over-exaggeration, three, four hours every single day on the street. Oh, yeah. So how are you going to compete with that and think that in Arizona you come to team training two or three times per week? So in other words, what you put in in a week, a kid in Amsterdam puts in in a day. Now that adds up real quickly over two, three years, right? So what you were preaching was right. You got to get as many touches on the board as possible on the soccer field, organized, but also unorganized. Pick up games, the street, the playground, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Um, to, to prove the point, and so at Phoenix College, uh, where I coach is heavy Hispanic, and the, the kids I have, they're, they play all the time. They're in 6v6 Sunday league. They, they play so much soccer, especially the group of kids I have. They're just, they're on three, four different 6v6 teams, an indoor team. Um, they're playing uh, Lemby. They play way too much, you know, for someone that's trying to develop a college team. So it's spring ball. Um, and we're, we're going to play Grand Canyon University. And this is right before uh, COVID hit. So this is February, 2020 before the shutdown. And, we didn't really have a place to to practice here because all the fields were uh, turning to rye. Uh, the grass, we were late in planting our grass, so we, didn't, we couldn't play. So we could lift weights, run on the track, and play some futsal. That's about it. But I kept telling our guys, I'm like, we're going to go smash GCU. And, and I was telling them why because I was trying to indoctrinate them in a way, understanding how good they are. I'm like, you guys have played more soccer, more matches, you watch the game more than everyone at GCU, by by far. They're, they're, and I kept telling them kind of like they, they have the comfort of, of sleep. They get protein shakes, all this stuff. They have all these things. And I was, I was just trying to convince them, we're going to go whoop on them because you guys have thousands of, upon thousands of hours of playing street soccer, 6v6. It just, they just play. And that amount of repetition does matter. So we go play GCU and it's just me and Carmen Esnell. That's all we had at coaching staff. And, and it was, Shellis was the coach at the time. Um, Vladimir, who was the coach here at PC. Uh, he, he was on that staff and they got like half a million dollar staff and they're whatever. They're, they're just uh, very organized and all that. And my pre, pre, uh, pre talk to them was just be you. And good luck. And I didn't say another word. We go up. We're 2-0 at halftime. We have the ball the whole time, just like embarrassing them. We're, I was getting nervous because Shellis was very upset, yelling at the referee. And I'm like, shoot, I'm like, this could be 4-5-0. Like, we were, we were punishing them. Anyways, the game ends 2-2. We had a red card, but we proved the point. And we had a lot, a lot of fans uh, in the stadium like, we didn't know you guys are that good. I'm like, yeah, we're that good. And uh, we can compete with Division One, but the the point being was, 
there was a disconnect with my players not understanding how good they were. And it happens with youth too. Oh, you're not part of MLS next. Therefore, I'm not good enough for whatever overall label. That means nothing. It's about opportunity uh, in real games to be able to make decisions and have success, have failure, and be able to to take that and elevate it. That's why I think it's important, especially someone like yourself that that coaches in such a way that you teach the game in such such a way that they're developing. Development can happen anywhere. Um, I think we're a name, a title. Uh, confuses a lot of families and kids about how good they really can be. Agreed. So uh, what are your thoughts on, on this? So how do you, how do you balance the focus on winning with the importance of players development and skill building? Did we skip a question there or do you just want to go to that one? Uh, well, we can go up. Uh, want to do that second question? Yeah, real quick, because that's only two, three sentences. Yeah, so how, how do you work to ensure that your program is accessible to kids from a variety of backgrounds and socioeconomic levels? Yeah, so one of the things at Batavia that I'm personally very proud of is actually the word socioeconomic is in our mission statement. We do not want any kids to be denied uh, the Batavia experience just because their parents cannot afford it. Now, having said that, obviously... I do make a living doing this, so I don't want to come across as a hypocrite. And the club itself, a nonprofit, has to operate in the black, right? If you scholarship 175 players, then sooner or later you're going to run into the into the red. But if a family really cannot afford it, then we we do ask for proof. So we ask for like tax returns or pay stops or something. But if it really is obvious that a kid is good enough and wants to play, but their parents cannot afford it, then we are one of the... F- clubs that actually do give a scholarship or at least a huge discount. Uh, Sometimes in return, we do ask the parents to volunteer for the club, right? Let's say hanging up the nets, lining the fields, that kind of stuff. But uh, yeah, that's kind of what we do. We do help out the the families in need. Well, I remember um, when when I I grew up playing, I played with the uh, Shamrocks and and I know there are some families helping us because I we came, I came from a very um, lower middle class home where we didn't we didn't have and four boys in the home and stuff. It's hard to spread out the wealth within all the kids that want to do stuff. Um, there's a lot of families that helped us out. We were really appreciative of the club and 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 whatnot. But the coaches back then really spearheaded that. Um, yes, I was talented. I was helping them with victories and whatnot, but they really came together to, to ins- ensure that we, uh, that they could help families like my family. And I was very appreciative of that. And I think that had a lot with parent engagement today. And this is a different question today uh, with some clubs. And I, I don't know the inner work in your club. I'm not in your club. Um, but how do you, how do you get the parent to be involved in such a way that they're, they're willing to help the community to help donate, help, uh, give time to help those that don't have enough. I think there's a disconnect with some clubs. It's like, this is a club you pay in the system. We do it. We got it. Stay, stay out. We got it. Just give us your fees versus a more of a community approach. Uh, how's your club? A yeah. Bit different? I'm glad you, you asked that question. So 
we do not keep the parents at arm length away. Now, obvi obviously, you got to set boundaries, right? We don't want a parent right after an emotional game to approach somebody and start talking to coach about why little Johnny plays left back instead of right wing or why they got only seven minutes of playing time. That's all the coach's discretion. But we are a family-oriented, community-based club. I think by simply, to answer your question, by simply continue to talk about it, by being passionate about it and not be shy to show that passion. The, 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 the families that are in our club, and we have been growing for the last four or five years, uh, year after year, is because they start buying into it. They really see what we stand for, and maybe even more importantly, what we do not stand for. And the, the families that leave Batavia to go to another club for X, Y, or Z reason, well, maybe that's not a bad thing, right? Maybe we cannot be all things to all people. And I, I, I know we are family. You hear that all the time. But yeah, at Batavia, we really are. The parents are involved. For example, each team, each team has their team manager, which is a volunteer parent. They don't get paid, but they passionately donate their time to help the team. Then you got a team treasurer. You got somebody who does the books, the, the paperwork. I think that's how you do it. You're just passionate about what you do and the people who buy into it, great. And the people who don't buy into it, that's also fine. We understand our other options yeah. in the Valley. Uh, there's a lot of parents that they're different as far as their understanding of things. And um, I, I'm a big believer in uh, educating the parents the best that you can as far as these are, this is my philosophy. This is how we, we coach. This is why we say what we say. This is why we allow certain things to happen as far as allowing failure and really trying to discover um, uh, a true learning model where kids can fail to have success. Uh, how do you feel about uh, parent education, especially during game time? Uh, I'm a fan of keeping the parents really close by so I can hear what they're saying. They can hear what I'm saying. Uh, what are your thoughts on parents on the opposite side versus being on the same side? Um, when you're when you're coaching, do you, do you feel like there's an opportunity for uh, growth within your uh, your parents, or what are your thoughts on um, uh, educating your parents, whether it's at games? Uh, well, first in, of all, into meetings or whatnot. Yeah. So, so first of all, I, we as Batavia coaches have nothing to hide. I think as a parent, it would be a red flag for me if if I had my kid play for somebody who said, okay, I got to talk to my team. You guys stay over there. I'm going to take my team here into this quiet corner so people cannot hear what I have to tell the kids. I don't know. There's a, there's a little bit of a red flag for me because what do you have to hide kind of thing, right? Now, having said that, on the sideline, parents cheering on their kids, great. You know, good kick, Johnny. Uh, good run, Susie. That's all fine. But when they start coaching during the game, especially when they start telling the player on the ball what they should do, pass, shoot, dribble. That's why I draw the line, and I got to tone them down. It's also in their uh, contract that they sign at the beginning of the year that there will be no coaching from the sideline. And believe it or not, just the last two years, unfortunately, we had to um, say goodbye to a couple of uh, dads who, yeah, who could not contain themselves, who thought they knew better, who was mingling in, who would almost sometimes was contradicting what the coach was telling their kids. And that's an absolute no-no. That's unacceptable. As far as which sideline they're on, 
as you know, each tournament, each league does it differently. You don't have much say into that, but I do not mind at all that our parents from our teams uh, sit three, four yards behind uh, the bench. Again, we have nothing to hide. Uh, the, there's a, another comment or actually a question from Gary Fung. He says, why are coaches joysticking talent ID showcases that college scouts and coaches are viewing? At the showcase, I would think we should allow the players that are selected to play and think on their own. Amen. Who, who asked that question? Gary Fung. Gary Fung? Fung. Yeah, I think it's a, uh, I think it's a, a uh, I don't know, a surname or kind of like inc- incognito. Pseudonym. Yeah, so. Uh, well, I know why they joystick coach. If you joystick coach, you're thinking long term. You want to win this game, right? Yeah. Shoot now, and guess what? If your team wins two to one, you feel like a great coach. Well, sorry, but that's absolutely wrong. You're better off losing a game, sitting back a bit, let the kids decide for themselves. Because if there's one thing about soccer compared to, let's say, American football, is that soccer is a player's game. They make the decisions. Every time they get the ball, they got to decide do I trap, do I dribble, do I shoot, and how they're going to learn when coaches in the air nonstop now guilty myself right you have these intense games where it's let's say a tournament final and it's zero zero then it's very tempting even for myself after 25 years to not coach to win the game but i would say 89 percent of the time you gotta let the players figure it out because how else are they are they gonna learn well it's 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 supposed to be a test and by the way gary fung is chinese oh well, there so, you go yeah so Gary Fung's always on my show, always commenting. I love it. I, I love Gary Fung. Yeah, uh, if you joystick coach every single game, you're gonna you're gonna maybe win games, but you're gonna turn kids into robots. And when they have to play college or pro, they will never make it because they're relying on coach telling them what to do. Yeah, and and I think that goes to uh, some questions we had about burnout. Um, if you're always being told what to do and you're always hearing comments about what you should have done and, and all these other things, uh, yeah, you're, you're going to burn out. It, what, it's not fun to be someone in your ear all the yeah, time. Yeah, it takes the fun away too, right? Yeah. But, but part of the fun of soccer is that you make your own decisions and sometimes they're wrong, but if you do something right, that is fantastic. Yeah, well, let's move on to our next question. Um, I believe it's, uh, where are we? Is it how do you balance the focus on winning? with the importance of player development and skill building? Yeah, also a great great question. I think it depends on age and level of the team. At the very youngest ages, coaches should not talk about winning, like whatsoever. If I see coaches yell at their kids when they're seven and eight-year-olds, that is so detrimental. That's when kids get burned out and they quit the game altogether. Now, having said that, at one point, you got to prepare them for the higher levels, like coach uh, college and pro and at that level it is about one thing and one thing only winning so as kids and teams get older we start shifting more and more to do talk about winning but also how do you win you know the technical and tactical parts of the game instead of emotionally just trying to win uh, win every single game it's i think it's a long-term vision and then when they turn 16 17 18 yeah then the word winning has to become more and more part of your vocabulary yeah, and Andreas says we lack creative players because of remote control coaches. Amen. Yep, and the focus of winning. And we actually talked about this 
earlier today, we we talked about um, a, a points league that that I I've done a points league, a points tournament or whatever. So like um, just changing the game and creating value for for successes on the field, like uh, intelligent successes, thought out successes where you see your teammate, you make a pass and you're rewarded with it. So um, I've been working on this for a while and I've been, I've tried it in uh, Palm Valley soccer league or the hammers league. I did rec league where uh, we had people turn in over uh, points, you know, with just uh, manually, but now we can go do it in our gym here, doing futsal. We can do it at bell bank now where we can reward points. And this is what I would suggest that we do just to try it out. And I'm just curious what your thoughts are. Uh, if you think it'd be successful, you, the viewer, if you think this might be successful and I have other podcasts talking about this, where you create a value for every pass that you connect to your team and your defensive half, you get one point and just point, point, point. And then when you make successful passes in the attacking half, you get two points. And then if you score a goal, only one, but you get the ball back. So you can keep adding uh, points to it and, and have a complete game. So every pass matters. Um, every thought matters. You look up, there's my team on the plate to my team and expand from there. And you, you can always change the points, how, you know, depending where the levels are and, and how you can uh, really get the, the players to get to the next level. Um, wh what are your thoughts about a points tournament or any thoughts on how you would do points to advance the game? And youth. Yeah, no, I think it's a great initiative. I think there's a TED talk about that. I forget who, who, who ran it. I can probably look it up. But there's a TED talk about a soccer coach who talks about exactly that. Um, I think at the, especially the youngest and middle ages, I think that would be a good idea. Because now we're talking about possession and passing the ball, which is obviously huge at the highest levels. My only concern, Dave, would be do players then start to pass for passing's sake? Play back to their keeper, to the left back, swing it around the horn in the back, just to keep it, keep it, keep it, keep it, keep it, and score points and points, but not really advance down the field. I don't have the answer, but that would be my only concern, that, that teams and, and players uh, will start passing for passing's sake, instead of the, the purpose of a pass should be to eventually progress down the field and score a goal, right? Right. Yeah. So, so maybe it's... Uh, you got to start somewhere, right? So yes. you, you change That's it. That's why I said at the yeah. youngest age, I think it's yeah. great. A, a completed pass at six, seven year old should be more important than scoring a lucky goal or putting your tallest, fastest, most aggressive kid on top. Tell all your teammates, like that movie, kicking and screaming, just kick it yeah. to the Italians, right? Yeah. <laughs> kick it to the kick, kick it to the big guy on guard, make a foot raise out of it, score a goal, win a game, and think you're on the right track. Yeah, I, I just don't know another way. I, I don't, it's hard to control the people. And, and when I did this point, I did this points league uh, in, the, in the Hammers organization a long time ago. And I kid you not, I had one crazy parent would always scream at his kid, go forward, go forward. He said, kid you not, I had just like, and I've said this a lot of times, I always tell this story. He, he was telling, yelling at his daughter to go backwards. Go backwards to the keeper. Because we, we had it. We, we set up points where if you got the ball back to the keeper and then connected pass and get past half filled, you got like eight more points. And we, we went crazy with it. But to, 
it's hard to control parents. I mean, you know, you run in situations, you just have to remove the parents from your club. There's a lot of them. And, you know, it's hard. Unless all the coaches in the clubs get together and say, let's get together, let's do this right. Or you pull the Louis Dabo trick where you <laughs> sub <laughs> them out to yeah, a parent. Yeah, you sub the kid out and you say, hey, your dad wants to talk to you. Yeah. <laughs> So I, I, I don't know what the solution, but we had to do something. Uh, well, how about this? I mean, I'm thinking out loud, really thinking out loud, so I could be way off, but would a pass forward maybe be two points and a pass square and backwards only one point? So now you do reward passing, but you do also stimulate going forward down yeah. the field, something like that. No, that's that's great. We, we, I, I learned, I actually used to do that just to rape, uh, my college kids took way too much time. Drew Granari actually told me about yeah, Mesa, yeah, Mesa College. Uh, he told, I was just asking, I was picking his brain and he was like, yeah, I, I rank all my players after a game. He'll watch the film and then he'll record every time they pass the ball forward, every time they did backwards, every time they forward, he gave a point. Every time he, uh, players pass the, squ- the ball square or, or backwards, zero. But if you lost it, like on a bad pass, minus one. And then he created a value. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I see that. Yeah. As, I, as long as people don't, like that that you mentioned earlier, as long as we don't start passing it back to the goalkeeper, again, for passing sake, you kept, you pass it back to your keeper when the soccer situation asks for, right? You get pressure from the opponent. You cannot go forward. Then I would say instead of just launching a long, long ball forward, yeah, pass it back to your keeper. But if you got the ball as a central defender, and you don't have pressure, and you turn around to pass it back just to score that point, yeah. that, that's not legal. That's, that's kind of silly. Uh, Gary Funk says, yeah, true. We cannot pass without purpose just to keep passing around the field like the Spain national team did <laughs> in the World Cup in 2022, LOL. Yeah. Yeah, but, but Spain did do the, the tiki-taki, what? They won three big tournaments in a row, right? Yeah. 08, 10, and 12. Yeah, the, it, it could serve a purpose. I just think we got to do something different um, with development. It, we, we have to try to do something, especially U8, U10, U12. We can get them connecting passes and be more comfortable with the ball. Uh, good things could happen from that. So the next question is, uh, let's see, is it how do you support and develop your coaches? Yeah, how do you support and develop your coaches to ensure that they are providing the best possible experience for their players. And you're a director, so how do you direct your coaches? Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a toolbox you've got as DOC, director of coaching to, to educate your coaches. I'll be honest with you, I should have more coaches meeting, but we do meet with the coaches, either in person or virtually. And then we talk about the technical curriculum, the tactical curriculum, incidents that have happened in the last month and how we were to deal with that so that that's let's call it internal uh, education but then we're also big on having our coaches licensed and i know that is a debatable topic and there's just as many people who are against it as they are forward but i just finished my b and i have to say i feel like i'm a better coach than i was six months ago maybe not because i learned a lot about the game but about structuring your session looking at the big picture so kind of planning out a whole season instead of reacting on what happened this this saturday let's say you 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 lose a game because you got beat i don't know with balls over the top a lot of coaches then short-term thinking go okay the next week i gotta work on that and then that saturday a game is another topic that big uh, that sticks out and you're going to work on that that next week i think it's a bit of hop skip jump 
training and coaching. I think you're better off laying out a whole curriculum for a year or actually multiple years and then stick with that regardless of how the game goes this Saturday. And that's what we've been trying to teach our coaches. And of course, being Dutch, I'm huge on the technique, especially at the youngest ages. I assume you've heard of the curver coaching method. Yep. I know it's got pros and cons, but I'm a big believer at the youngest ages that they got to learn how to dribble, ball mastery, changing direction. And all the coaches we have believe in that. And another thing I've been doing, I don't know if this falls under education, but more than half of the coaching staff are, are players that I used to coach myself. And so now they're adults, they're back, they want to give back to the game. And it saves me teaching them because they already know the way yeah. I operate. I really like that. When, when, when former players get involved in your coaching staff when they turn um, 18 or even older. You're getting old, mate. Hey, hey. Thanks for rubbing it in. <laughs> I just hit the big 5-0 this year, my friend. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> How dare you? I know. I, I don't know if I can hang out with you anymore. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I, I, do you ever forget your age? No. Like, Not I yet. do. I do. You so, do? <laughs> yeah. I, the best birthday gift my wife gave me was reminding me how old I really was. I thought I was 48. I swore I was 48. No, and, come on. And, and she's like, no, you're 47. I'm like, I just got a year. I felt like I got a year. It's a good year. feeling. Yeah, it's a great feeling. But um, yeah, that's, that's uh, licensing. Yeah, I'm not a fan of the cost. Uh, I think it needs to be more available to everybody so we can, especially in the communities that can't get licensing. And, and we've used licensing to criminalize clubs. Oh, your, your teams are good, like Tuzos. Oh, they're good. But you know what? You don't have uh, 7A licensed coaches in your club. You cannot play in this league. Oh, it goes a step farther. It, they dictated now if you don't have a C license, USS, US Soccer C, that you cannot coach your team in state league anymore. Can you believe it? Then make it available. That, that That's my problem. It's it's expensive. It is. Depends on what level, right? The youngest grassroots and all. That's that's very and, doable. But once you get to the C and above, then we're talking thousands of dollars. So as a club, Batavia has decided, okay, if we want our coaches to get educated, then we also have got to pay up. So we do reimburse them. Of course, we ask them to promise to stay with the club at least two, right. three years. But it's not just the knowledge you get from the courses. It's also the interacting with the other coaches. One one thing I liked about the B I just did was the networking. You run into other coaches. Yeah. You hear their ideas. How do they run a club? How do they educate their coach, coaches? Did, That's did, the exciting Did part. you go to the convention? The USC? No, I did not. Uh, so the convention was in Philly. and right. it, talking it, about United Soccer Coaches. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. It, was, it was a blast. I love the convention. I've only been twice. Um, but yeah, the, the networking, meeting, meeting people and, and picking specific classes that you would like to participate. There's so many good, I, I don't like watching like the tactical sessions and the field work, but in rooms where you get to hear from, uh, these doctors of, of their industry, we, there's one of the best speakers at the convention was, um, the, uh, sports director for England, sporting director for, for all sports. So he was helping uh, develop good coaching in rugby, soccer. He oversaw it all, and he was so brilliant. I'm like, I was just like, I'm buying the video. Like, you could, I didn't want to write down every little detail. I just want to take it in. And there's so many good um, good coaches out there, but it are good, good information. But I don't think it needs to be hidden as much. And 
it needs to be more accessible, especially for those clubs that are doing well. And maybe that's what U.S. soccer does. Maybe they're like, oh, this club's like developing uh, teams or talent. They're coming from them. Let's award them with, all right, you guys get a credit towards educating your that people. That would be awesome. Just don't hold your breath of that happening anytime soon. No, because it's a pathway for more people to make money. They don't coach. And that's what bugs me. A lot of, a lot of the people that are part of the educational system that, that they're writing the books and, and develop the curriculum are in the trenches with us. Yeah. You know what I really learned at that course? Um, peri- they call it periodization, right? The labor yeah. rest ratio. I, in 25 years, I was just, I don't want to call it winging it because obviously I got experience in the game. I just watched the the player's body language and I knew when to push, when to back off a little bit. But apparently there's a whole science behind it. You know, when you have yeah. a, let's say you got a double header, Saturday game, Sunday game, then it's very important what you do and what you do not do that following Monday, Tuesday to prepare for the next game. So that whole science behind it, if it's got to be a 50% workload session, or a recovery session, or a fitness session, which is a 90% of your workloads, and 100% is the game itself. Yeah, I learned an awful lot from that, the theory, the the science, instead of just winging it. Yeah, that, that's, um, and it, you're getting into like, with the the, the breakdowns of, of recovery and, and, and time frames between a game and all that, that was used here quite a bit um, by uh, Coach V, and uh, it's definitely a, a good model, especially if you have control of where they're sleeping, diet, all those things at the professional college level. Uh, but nothing will ever uh, trade out talent. Like no, the, the and talent is developed not not by you or I. We can manage that talent and elevate that talent. It's it's their drive at home. Where, where they watch the game. You can't, you can't get them to go watch the game. You can't get them to watch Champions League and stuff like that. You can, you can facilitate it a little bit. You can motivate a little bit, but they're home. I, I think parents are so valuable to their children in, in indoctrinating, as bad that might sound, their kids in the game. Yeah, I remember you invited Tom two, three years ago. That that um, soccer starts at home or something. Oh, Tom Beyer. Tom Beyer. I went to that that lecture that he did. Mm-hmm. That's important. That 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 parents stimulate and encourage their kids to take that ball into the backyard. Very important. And and, and watch soccer games in need. So yes. real, real quick, out of a hundred kids, how many do you think what? So youth soccer players in Arizona, out of a hundred, how many watch pro soccer every week? You think? Give me a percentage. In America? No, here in Arizona. Yeah, Arizona. Like you, club kids? Yeah, club kids. Ten percent. Yes. So ninety percent cannot be bad. Yeah. Or they don't enjoy it. So that's a big one because I dare say it's not just entertaining to watch uh, Liverpool against whatever, but it's also educational. Yeah. It, and the thing is like I'm I'm not a big soccer fan as much as my son but i knew what i was doing i i was all sport that's just the way i grew up my son and i encourage you to do this too and tell your your families to do this uh if they're able 
is one thing I did really good about indoctrinating my kid into the game. I would take my kids out of school during Champions League semis and go to Georgian Dragon. Dad's picking us up. He's taking us out of school and we're at a sports bar with a bunch of crazies eating fish and chips. They'll they'll remember it forever. Oh yeah, they will. It's like Christmas. They might have to take the second grade twice, but hey, that's okay. We're <laughs> gonna forget that. All parents should do that. In it, Champions League semis can't do finals because that, that's a Saturday, but uh, it'll be a, a a Wednesday, Tuesday or Wednesday. You can watch, uh, or or they both both play the same day. I think on a Wednesday. Um, or maybe it's two days, but um, take your kids out of school. Yeah. Good. Well, we just had the World Cup. Uh, maybe, oh. the, maybe the ten percent jumps to I don't know twenty five yeah. percent, but it's still it's 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 not enough. They gotta they gotta live, eat, and breathe the game if they really want to succeed. Andreas says, "Invisible training is the most important training for youth development. We as coaches are catalysts. We can discover, enhance, stimulate, elevate." But the invisible training is the deal breaker. Uh, it goes on to say, this includes watching the game at the highest level, street soccer, playing more games without burning them out. Facts. Yep. Yep. Agreed. It, 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 it is a process. And I think parents, community, uh, we are a big catalyst, as Andreas was saying, about uh, developing our, our kids to be uh, – to love the game forever. Like yep. my, my daughter, Dakota, who, you know, she went to Seattle U, she played there a couple of years, quit. Um, just be a lot of factors, but she still plays. She's playing in the neon league. We were talking about. Oh, right. right so right. she'll be coming out April 1st and 2nd to be part of that reality show, but she still plays. She plays futsal. She loves the game. Yeah. And I did my job. Our job's not to create professional players or division one. We, we just teach them to love the game. What, Whatever else happens, happens. But if we can get our kids, uh, the ones that we have uh, stewardship over or whatever you want to call it, uh, and they learn to love the game then, forever, then you've done we, your we job. did it. Yeah, that, I have that's to agree. all we have to do. Yeah. Because how many kids have you seen over the years, Dave, that were super talented, great athletes, but they were pushed so hard at such an early age, and by the time they're 12, 13, they go, nah, I don't like it anymore, mom, dad, I'm going to so, quit. So many. Countless. So many, especially, especially on the girl side. Girl, Is girl, right? Yeah, I think you're uh, right. It just from my experience, as there's so many top talented girls that just they find a way out. Division one scholarship players quit. I see it time and time again, and I think, well, of my opinion, watching the girls' game, it just seems very violent. And you hear a lot of go through her, get stuck in because they want to win so bad. And they think by being aggressive and in the girls game, you may see that the technique is lacking a little bit more on, on the girls side than the boys side. I don't know why that is. I don't know why the national teams are so different, but out there in Arizona, anyways, I, I see the girls game is very, very violent and it's number two of all sports and concussions. So explain me that that's violence. So number two, you yeah. know, number one's football. Number two is girl soccer, boy soccer way down the list. Interesting. I didn't know that. that, that that's facts. And why, why is it so violent? 
why there's so many collisions and why so many coaches saying, get a body on her, get stuck in, go through her. Well, again, the emphasis on winning. Let yep. them play. There's an American term that we don't have in the Dutch language. It's called to live vicariously through somebody. I think some of these coaches, some of the youth coaches get so much pressure on winning that they, again, coach to win this game and they forget the bigger picture, the long-term vision. And if their team wins, then he's a better coach. That kind of misthinking is going on. Andreas says, here in Chicago, it started U14 for boys and U15 for girls. David, you are right. Parents want to help girls to be tougher, so the words they use is not correct. This is why ACL concussions occur. And Gary Funk says, yep, those are facts. Um, I didn't think about that. You know, girls kind of got to be tough. You know, you got to be stronger kind of mentality to push them through it. But isn't it child abuse? Yeah, it depends on your definition, but it's definitely bordering on it. Yeah, yeah. It, ACL injuries and stuff. And to knock on wood, and I got to stop saying this, but I've coached girls soccer for a long time, 96 Hammers. Yeah, you know, we played each other. Yeah, and I've been coaching girls soccer for a very long time, even though I'm the men's soccer coach here at PC. But um, not one ACL injury ever. That's unheard of. That's yeah. the very rare exception. I, I, always, I always told my girls, Stay on two feet, you know, and I don't overdo it. I think, I think the way you waste energy of going forward, 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 and, and I'm lucky too. I'm sure there's a lot of luck involved, but slowing the game down, not trying to run with teams you can't run with, you know, just. Well, be, put be, yourself in the shoes of a, of a coach that, let's say, hypothetically, doesn't have the technical or tactical knowledge to give to their kids. So what do you go to automatically then is athleticism and aggression. Yep. Yeah. Removing time and space through aggression, which wins. It, it, it does win. It, it's a very important part of the game. And by the way, at, at the oldest and the highest levels, that desire and will to win is the difference between, you know, making it to the pros or not making it. But first, you got to get your technical and yeah. tactical uh, baggage uh, in. Yeah. Well, uh, let's finish a couple of these more questions. Uh, do we want to take that? How do you uh, measure success in your youth soccer program beyond just wins and losses? I think. Yeah, I love that yeah, question. Let's do that one. I think you said it earlier, Dave. If you install a lifelong passion for the game, that is already success. Right? Now, now a kid has a hobby for life. Now a kid has a vehicle for life, like to learn life lessons, like, again, teamwork, leadership, communication, self-discipline. I think that's a big measure of success. And then, of course, eventually, if you see your kids grow, get more comfortable on the ball, uh, you see that confidence grow. I go back to one of our 08 players. Shout out to Rory Cressman here. He is working on this escalator trap, you know, a ball falling out of the sky, mm -hmm. like a goalie spawned, and to just trap it on top of your toes and bring it down. Right. So we're working on that for weeks, weeks, and the ball is jumping left, right, and he cannot get it under control. And he did it once at the last practice before a game. I said, yeah, so Saturday at the game, if this happens, instead of just letting it hit your body as you sometimes see, you know, people right. just standing still letting it hit. He goes, look, I, I tell him, let's just try it. Even if you lose it, no big deal. The guy pulls it off. I said, that's what we worked on, Rory. No, the guy grew literally three inches. Like, look at me. Like me, yeah. That's success. Oh, total success. They, um, the uh, What's interesting about the uh, 
the, I think coaches that are like futuristic, like paying attention, not for instant gratification, just for later gratification. Like you mentioned at the beginning, like someone come back to you and remembering you as a coach. If you want to have a long lasting effect, you, you put in the work and time and restraint to allow, uh, uh, successes to happen through a lot of failure like you were just mentioning i i think if if coaches could think the long terms of how you can affect not only that individual's life you can affect the community you're the team and all these greater things other than yourself um and take removing the ego out of it and really focus on what really matters for this individual they they want to feel like they're successful and you can give them that pathway, allowing failure, allowing repetition that makes sense where they can have that experience in a game in that one moment. How cool was that to recognize that? He's never going to forget that. Yeah. And that also means that he now knows that if he puts his his time in and he's dedicated to to acquiring a certain skill, which, I don't know, can be a different language or a musical instrument, it doesn't really matter what, that he knows that he can achieve that. that. That is... Again, that's success. Absolutely. So next question, what, what advice would you give to parents who are not or who are new to youth soccer and looking to get involved with their child's team? Research, research, research. Don't go on names, reputation. Really know, uh, see a coach in action before you have your kids sign up with somebody, for example. Are they encouraging? Are they positive? Or is it a yellow on the sideline who's joystick coaching and, and just, you know, berating their kids, which unfortunately I still see every single weekend. If you hear some of the language, that's, uh, it's cringe-worthy. And then, of course, very important that, kid, that parents look for technical development at the youngest ages. When you say new to soccer, I assume the kid is, what, five, six-year-old? That, that kind of parent? Sure. Technique. If you see... A coach working on strength and conditioning or corner kicks at the age of six or seven, huge red flag for me. I would walk away in a hurry. I would want my kid to be exposed to a coach who works 90% of the time on building technical skills, dribbling, passing, shooting, first touch, turning, all that good stuff. And 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 I would say to to new parents of the game, you you can you can be very involved by being very silent. And taking notes. So I would just track your child. How much time are they on the field? I would record it. So you're involved that way. And I would record how many touches they have on the ball. um, How many times they pass the ball forward. How many times they pass the ball backwards. How many takeaways they have. Just little things that you can just keep math of and, and record. And then over time, you can see changes of their performance. And that'll allow you to to continue to decide, do I want to stay with this coach or this club or do I want to move somewhere else where their successes are going up or opportunities on the ball are going up or time on the field going up, especially at younger ages. Um, You can be involved simply by math versus being vocal, trying to solve it right away, but having a more uh, prolonged approach where you're, you're getting data over time and giving opportunities. Amen to that. I think it's also the sign of the times a little bit, that instant gratification uh, that people want nowadays. I mean, it must it must feel good to win this coming Saturday. I get it. But isn't it more important where a player can be five years from now if you properly develop them? Uh, delayed gratification is 
much more solid, much more substantial than uh, luckily winning a game this coming Saturday because coaches joysticking, for example. And and the thing you don't even, you don't even have to be new to the game. Like you could just be new to the parent side. Like I, when I went from coaching to a parent, and you know, oh, I'm a college coach. You know, no, I'm I'm a parent, and I was just taking notes. And I remember my son, he's playing for uh, Tuzos at the time and we're playing um, whomever. And, and I'm just, I'm just taking notes. And my son at the time would not uh, defend. He, he wouldn't get any ball. He loved it on his feet, but he wasn't competing defensively. So I, I did, did takeaways and takeaways assists. I did takeaways where it was solo. And then assist where he is five yards around the ball as the opposition lost the ball and someone else got her. So a takeaway assist. And then I recorded someone that I noticed that was really good, Nathaniel, who, who seven, eight solo uh, takeaways and like 10 takeaway assists. He was all over the place. And I showed my son, here's Nathaniel, here's you. You have zero. He has nine. Uh, you see a problem? <laughs> That's always the next level. The next game, he was like everywhere defending. It was different because he knew the math. And I, I would show up, that was much better, son. Yeah. So even as a parent, a parents can be very valuable. But you discuss that with him yeah. after game, not during yelling during no, the game, right? Never. So, I, so I, I got, would never want to do that to I got a twin coach. boys myself, and I used to, I was their coach for club. But then they went to high school. So I went to visit and watched a few of the high school games. Do you think I said anything during the game to those boys? I hope not. Zero. I've seen this video clip even from when Suarez and Messi was still at Barcelona. They had their own kids playing for the youth uh, academy there. And they're just sitting there. Zilch. So if Messi and Luis Suarez say nothing to the coach or or to their kid during a game, then... Maybe some other parents should uh, take note. <laughs> yeah, I'll leave it at that. Well, it, it's gone late, and I apologize for this podcast. As far as we lost connection, my bad. Uh, but we learned. We had this. Luckily, I had another battery. Yeah, connector. But um, yeah, and I'll patch this all t- together. And thank you so much for you know the. We still have six viewers right now this late, and I thank you so much for coming back and being part of this. Uh, podcast we appreciate you and we appreciate you coming on this was it your fifth time on the show Six? i lose track i, I really don't know I, it I, seems about right four I, or five I, I i thank you so much for being part of this podcast but how can we uh find out more about you and where can uh we learn more about uh, fc batavia yeah i mean a good time actually to come um to get together, right? Because as you know, it is what middle of March right now. So guess what's happening? Tryouts. <laughs> <laughs> Club tryouts are around the corner. So uh People who kind of liked what uh, what I spoke about, uh, please visit us, fcbatavia.com, fcbatavia.com, or just Google me. My name is Rick Tillmans, R-I-C-K-A-T-I-L-M-A-N-S, and just reach out. Um, it, we are North Phoenix, very close to the Reach 11 soccer fields for people who are in, in Arizona and wonder where we are. And again, if, they, if they're looking for a balanced approach where coaches are very serious about soccer, but still understand that kids have a life. So not the the either extreme of the three categories of clubs that I gave very early on. Then uh, come check us out. All right. 
Well, I'll, I'll definitely put all your information in, in, in our in our uh, subject notes and everything. And uh, yeah, no, thank you, Gary Fung. Um, thank you. Good questions, by the way. Yeah. The, the listeners. Yeah, we appreciate you guys. We'll be back next Sunday, 8 p.m. Mountain Standard Time. Um, and uh, thanks for uh, Bots Guy uh, for being involved. And uh, 4K for Life is back. Thank you for being part of this show. And uh, be sure to like uh, and subscribe to this uh, YouTube channel. And uh, hit the notification bell if you want to know when we're on, especially when the live goes off. <laughs> And you can find us. So always have the notification bell on so you know when we're live. And uh, we'll see you next Sunday, 8 p.m. Mountain Center time. Thanks so much, Rick. Appreciate it. Thank you, Dave.